to John Swinfield's Big Business Podcast. And now, let me introduce your host, journalist and writer, John Swinfield. Hello, I'm John Swinfield. Welcome to Big Business. I'm a journalist and television producer, and I've spent much of my life writing and making films about business bosses. I hope you find this pod gossipy, irreverent, informative, and even fun. If you like the feed, please don't forget to click the subscriber button. Big Business is on every week at 11am GMT on Wednesdays. I'd flown to Paris early one morning and was waiting to see Régine at her apartment. She was the world's leading nightclub and discotheque operator at the time. I was about to call it a day when two hours late in she swept, without a murmur of explanation, let alone an apology. In mangled English, she looked me up and down. Who is you? What is you want, she said. Swathed in a shrieking gold lame wrap with an eye-watering print, before I could reply, she said, you is English. I know you is English. I always know where somebody from. Was she suffering from some peculiar form of confrontational amnesia? Memory loss linked to aggression? Only the day before we'd spoken on the phone to confirm our meeting. I wanted to make a half-hour TV film about her and the so-called nighttime economy, a description I thought bogus then and still do. I'd heard she could be fiendishly aloof, but this seemed over the top. She ran nightclubs. Big deal. Perhaps a surfeit of beautiful people had turned her head. This, then, was Madame Régine, heavily rouged, a flame-haired Belgian, fancifully dubbed the Queen of the Night. I should perhaps have bowed, reputedly the creator of the modern discotheque, responsible for junking jukeboxes, linking turntables, and installing disc jockeys. Co was at its height, and she'd made a fortune, lending her names to clubs across the globe from New York to Monte Carlo. She opened one in London in 1979, above the old Derry and Tom store in Knightsbridge. It had a roof garden which had been built originally in the 1930s. She'd refurbished it. Lawns, palm trees, a river, strutting pink flamingos. All very lovely if slightly insane. Regine's life was so festooned with legend and myth, it was difficult to discern fact from fable. I am little beat Belgian, Pole, French, American, she told me. Regine is everything, all over, everywhere. I am Regine of the world. Everybody know me. Rich, poor, all famous people know Regine. Film star, TV, Hollywood, big shots, big sportsmen, politicians, government, all know me. They all come, my clubs. We have party all night. Have fun, dance, sing, nice time. Everybody love Regine. I go bed when others is get up. I see moon, then sun. Many dawn is life of Regine. You understand? Yes? I started to tell her that I most definitely did, sort of, 
But before I could do so, she was off again. You come here, talk about London regime, yes? I tell you, you see garden in sky. You look down cars in street, yes? Very eye up. Pink birds. I do garden. Spectacular. Spectacular. Born Regina Zilberberg in 1929 in Belgium to Polish-Jewish parents. She'd spent her childhood years hiding in occupied France from the Nazi hordes. On learning this, my first impressions began to soften. Perhaps I judged her too harshly and too hastily. Even to survive, she'd have needed a hard shell. Was her imperiousness in some way perhaps a consequence of a fractured childhood? By the time she was 24, she'd been a torch singer in Paris and managed a nightclub. Wherever and whenever she opened a club, Régine summoned up local backers. In London, it was Nandishkor Ram, a handsome Indian with a warm smile and a shock of prematurely snow-white hair. Like Régine, he was something of an enigma. It was not easy to tell from where he'd emerged and how he'd made his money. One way was through hypermarkets, fashionable at the time. He'd fill a space with stallholders, flogging candles, beads, caftans and balsam salts for health baths. They'd pay him rent for their pitches. This was the era of shoulder pads. The Texas soap opera Dallas, which gripped TV audiences globally. The Bee Gees, with the disco hymn Stayin' Alive from Saturday Night Fever. And, of course, post-Beatle hippies living on pot and love and wishing they'd stayed in Nepal. One of Ram's hypermarkets was on the corner of Church Street, Kensington, almost opposite Regine's. In 1973, Six years before Régine opened on its roof, the seven-storey Darien Toms building became home to Bieber, the iconic creation of another Polish-born woman, Barbara Hulaniki. With its art deco interiors, velvety gloom and pounding music, Bieber was a fashion mecca which set the trend from New York to Sydney. Around the time that Régine's failed in London, with its mirrors and flashing disco floor, I had lunch with an old pal, Nigel Dempster, or The Dumpster, as the satirical magazine Private Eye had labelled him. We went to Odin's, one of my favourite retreats, owned by Peter Langan, whose brasserie, in which Michael Caine had an interest, was the more famous, though it could never hold a candle to Odin's. Nigel was the gossip-in-chief of the Daily Mail, his column compulsive if you like that type of thing, which millions did, but would rarely admit to it. He was a master craftsman, matched only by my friend Chris Wilson, a.k.a. William Hickey, of the Daily Express. At a personal level, the dumpster and Chris can be irresistibly mischievous and huge fun. Ray Jeans didn't last long in London. When I asked Dempster what had gone wrong, he whispered, well, her, mainly. Who did he mean? Regine? 
Yes, you know how she is. It's all right in New York, all that stuff. But it really doesn't work in London. Far too flash. What didn't work? I didn't understand. Well, her, you know what she's like. I didn't, really. She's got the wrong types, the wrong clientele. Who do you mean? Well, I can't name names or nationalities. You know how it is. I'm fed up with being sued. The whole world's become madly litigious. Well, it didn't seem to inhibit him or the male. You'd be surprised, he said, how much doesn't actually get in. But what of regimes? Well, it's a bit passe, he said. Time's up, really. It had only opened a short while before. That's the nightclub business. Things move on. And it's always been in the wrong place. What on earth did he mean? It's so far out. It's in Knightsbridge. Yes, I said, but that's only two miles from Trafalgar Square. Well, exactly. Out in the sticks, old boy. He told me many other things, but like Nigel, I too know the elasticity of defamation law. Regime was quoted as saying that the club failed because of the British lack of style. Or as Nigel said, well, she would say that, wouldn't she? Chris Wilson of the Express told me, well, when Regime was around, one well-heeled lady said to me at the time, who's for the country? meaning that Regine's was out of town. People liked to stick around Mayfair at night. Regine was imperious, you know, a true Parisienne. But when she arrived in London, she, I'm afraid, totally misread the runes. She thought the roof garden was an idyllic setting, and so, in a manner of speaking, it was, except for the people she wanted to attract. It's all about the clientele, and it's all about location. So that was Chris Wilson's view. I interviewed also Di Llewellyn for the programme, a regular fixture in nightclubs and the Hickey and Dempster columns. His real handle was Sir David St Vincent Di Llewellyn, fourth baronet, a connoisseur of that which began at dusk, heated up after dark and was still going strong at breakfast. Di was, in every sense, a moonlight serenader. Sometimes he was paid as a greeter and gatherer by clubs. He knew everybody and would scoop up the allegedly beautiful people for whichever club was in vogue. Those I knew, I have to say, were more usually addled than lovely. When night fell and stars twinkled, Di would haunt Regines and Wedges, Annabelle's and Tokyo Joe's. He was the brother of Roddy, Sir Roderick Victor Llewellyn, fifth baronet, gardener, author, and, of course, beau of Princess Margaret. Di was an inveterate Lothario, a priapic Welsh socialite. I just can't help myself, he laughed. He brimmed with entertaining stories, most of them involving women who adored him and which I can't retail here for reasons similar to those which apply to my Odin's tete-a-tete with Dempster. Di, who sadly died in 2009, had miraculously survived by clinging to the wreckage of London's swinging 60s and 70s club scene. 
and was still afloat when disco spread like a pandemic and Regine opened in London in 1979. One could hardly make a television documentary about nightclubs without including Victor Lowndes, the American who ran Hugh Hefner's libertine playboy operation in London and who went on to marry Marilyn Coles, a playboy centrefold. As we drove along Brighton seafront in his top-down Chevrolet Corvette, a big Chevy Corvette was the apotheosis of macho America, he told me how he'd managed the first playboy club in Chicago. In England, he told me, everybody thinks I'm a gangster. It's crazy. I'm just a businessman. I like girls and I like casinos. But, you know, it can be a rough industry. There are some powerful people in it. For all his protestations, I felt Victor rather enjoyed playing up to his tough guy image. On the open road with his foot down and the Chevy growling, he talked of how he and Hefner had opened London's Playboy Club in 1966, cashing in on the liberalisation of the UK's gaming laws. Fifteen years later, it had turned into a money mill. It had become one of the world's most profitable casinos. Playboy also bought the Claremont in London's Barclay Square and the Victoria Sporting Club. By 1981, the Park Lane Playboy Club was mired in scandal, with accusations about gambling irregularities. Gambling is customarily linked to criminality. The club lost its gambling licence, Lowndes and Hefner fell out, Hefner fired him, and the profits went into a steep decline. Victor Aubrey Lowndes was racy, louche and engaging, as rogues can be. All the clichés were true. He was devil-may-care, colourful, he had a penchant for the fast lane and homes in Aspen, Manhattan and Spain. He was also quietly cultured. Despite the excesses, the river of famous faces who courted his company, he wrote, he made films, he was well-read and he had more than a cosmetic knowledge of antiques and art. In London, he would eventually come to eschew the glare of girls, gaming and litter balls, choosing instead to lead a discreet life in the refined and costly groves of Belgravia. He once invited me to spend a night at Stocks, the country house in Hertfordshire, which was an essential component in the Playboy domain. Playboy croupiers and bunnies underwent their training there, the bunnies prancing around in satin bathing suits with their fluffy bunny tails. How chauvinistic it all sounds today, and quite intolerably cheesy. Stocks was set in rolling acres with a dozen bedrooms, a large swimming pool and a king-sized jacuzzi. All sorts of things were said to go on there, with rancid rumours about orgies and congregations of irate neighbours complaining about all-night parties. Boring to report that I had an entirely uneventful night, apart from, that is, an unexplained scream and some high-pitched laughter 
at four in the morning, sleeping in a huge bed covered in the skin of some vast, and I have to say, especially furry and very itchy mammoth. You've been listening to Big Business. This is John Swinfield signing off. Don't forget to click on subscribe. I'm on every Wednesday at 11am GMT.